You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them, drink up and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure, In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. These are the words of the Lord. Last night, Whitney Museum of American Art in New York City hosted the film by Andy Warhol, Empire. Uh, Theater goers lined up, ready with their tickets, but also came prepared with the following. Plenty of snacks, pillows, and blankets. Andy Warhol's movie is over eight hours long. It's eight hours and five minutes long. It's a completely silent movie, and it consists of one black and white shot of the Empire State Building. So you could say the moviegoers came prepared, realizing at some point they're going to fall asleep and it'll be hard for them to stay engaged. And it got me thinking about the fact that this year's verse is about being devoted to doing what is good. And that's a great catchphrase, but what classifies as being good? 
as a church, as individual believers, what should we be devoting ourselves to that is good? And so for the next couple weeks, we're going to unfold that thought of what is good by looking at, this morning, worship. Because I wonder sometimes if many people come to church much like those people who went to Andy Warhol's movie. They come perhaps hoping that something good might happen, but also prepared that somewhere during that event, they will lose their concentration. Uh, they don't want to nod off. And in fact, during that entire time, the only thing that may move is not their heart, but their position and their seats. And is that? what worship should look like. So I direct your thoughts to Psalm chapter 73. And anytime you come to the study of a psalm, always look to see if it has a superscription or title to it. And they all don't. But you'll notice Psalm 73, which I mentioned already, is a psalm of Asaph. Now we know very little about Asaph other than in the book of Chronicles, he is mentioned as one of the musicians or worship leaders. Uh, so this is a, a song of praise that was meant to be used among the people of God in worship. And so that tells you something about it, and we can tell by listening to this psalm and studying it that it is intended to refresh and reorient are thinking about worship. So let's take a closer look at what is really Israel's ancient hymn book and see what we can learn about what worship should look like, what it should mean to say that as the people of God, we worship well. And so look at me at verse 1. Verse 1 is very similar to how the, the psalm will conclude in verse 28. But for now, focus verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Worship is fitting for God's people. In other words, you really can't talk about loving God, being one who knows God through Christ, without somehow referencing worship and what it means to worship well, to worship right. Clearly, the psalm opens with the fact that worship is fitting for God's people. Why? Because surely God is good to Israel. This obviously is a different word than the word good in our reference from Titus 3. But it means morally excellent. Everything about God is perfect. But notice that he is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. So we have been designed for worship and enabled to worship by God's grace. And that's very important for us to remember that we, we have been hardwired to worship, to look beyond ourselves, to find someone bigger than ourselves to devote our time and attention to. And I think if you look around the workplace, as you look around our world, it's very clear to see the problem isn't that the person who doesn't know Christ doesn't understand commitment or devotion. They are very committed and devoted people. But it's what is the object of their devotion or commitment that brings a sharp distinction between those who know Christ 
and those who don't. And so you notice here as this psalm unfolds for us, we're designed for worship. We're only able to do that by God's grace. God is good. And just as you hear that phrase, to pause and consider how you would fill that in. God is good because, and we should all be thinking of a number of things that can come to mind. Forgiveness of sin in Christ. For revealing himself to us through his word in a way that we can understand it. For his mercies that are new every day. But worship is clearly about the state of the heart. Notice Asaph does not go into a description about the musicians themselves who are performing. He doesn't go into a description about the tabernacle or sanctuary or anything related to that. But he focuses on the heart. Because worship is all about the motivation, the desire of our heart. Why do we gather to worship? I want you to go over to the book of John for a moment. John chapter 4, and there we find an interesting discussion and conversation related to worship between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And you're familiar with this account. It's loaded with uh, a tremendous amount of cultural issues there as uh, Jesus not only speaks directly to this woman, uh, but she is a Samaritan. Uh, and the Samaritans and Jews uh, both are very much in disagreement as where is the place for true worship. So going back in Old Testament history, you have the people of Samaria uh, building their temple at Mount Gerizim. And you have the people of Israel worshiping in Jerusalem, each saying the other one is correct as to where the temple should be. Well, Jesus engages in <coughs> a conversation here about worship. And picking up in this in verse 21, Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. How intriguing that Jesus takes us right back to the heart of the Psalms to reveal that worship must focus on the condition of the heart. Nowhere in the New Testament do you find a description of one of the places where believers are gathered. You don't have a description of the homes, what they're like, how the furniture was set in place, for what a worship service should look like. Because from culture to culture, that will change. From time to time, that will change. At one time, it was the custom churches had pews. As we all know, many churches now don't have pews. So it's not that furniture or that outward exterior environment that is the key to worship. It is, do you know what it means to worship in spirit and in truth? Very clear directions reminding us of what should be at the center of our worship. 
Jonathan Gibson recently co-wrote a book called Reformation Worship, uh, a very extensive book, over 500 pages long. But in the very beginning, he gives this definition of worship. He says, worship is the right, fitting, and delightful response of moral beings, angelic and human, to God the creator, redeemer, and consummator for who he is as one eternal God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now that may seem like a long definition, but, but what a beautiful way of capturing what is at the heart of Asaph's psalm, what is at the heart of Jesus' definition of worship in the New Testament. That worship is the right, fitting, and delightful response of moral beings, angelic and human, to God the creator, redeemer, and consummator for who he is as one eternal God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So worship is Trinitarian. It involves each member of the Godhead. But now returning to Psalm chapter 73, we want to see what else Asaph wants to show us about worship. Since worship is fitting for God's people, then in every and any situation or circumstance, God's people should be engaged in worship. Because you notice here in this particular psalm, verses 2 through 14, take you into Asaph's thinking. And it's not just Asaph who is wrestling with some of this. But we can understand this psalm is reflective of what many times God's people wrestle with. In other words, when you think about worship, sometimes we equate worship with how we're feeling. So we feel like we're ready for worship because we've had a good morning and, and we show up and the church is warm. We see our friends, so we're ready for worship. We read the meditation, so therefore we must be ready for worship. But we fail to remember that worship, true worship, is genuinely proven when you can worship God irregardless of your circumstances and trials. Because I hinted at there's something troubling Asaph as he comes before God. And you see it stated clearly in verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Have you ever wrestled with the thought why do evil people sometimes appear to have great lives, lives of leisure, lives of success, prosperity? Asaph goes on in verses in between 2 and 14, sort of taking you through some of his, his tough questions and thoughts here. Why is it sometimes evil people are healthy and they die quickly? They, they don't seem to suffer. They're not facing prolonged sickness. They live their life and they die healthy. In every way, they appear to have the good life. Why do some of us find ourselves maybe in a home that we might consider small? When I was just reading something the other day about a house in the Hamptons that has 16 bathrooms. 
We might look at that and say, well, that doesn't seem fair. You know, here I am trying hard, trying to be a faithful Christian, and, and how come somebody else seems to have it all? And if we think these are questions unique to Asaph, I don't think we're being honest with ourselves. Because as you look around our world, we can think of people who don't love God, who have no interest in Christ, but it appears that they have a good life. They're happy, they have plenty of friends, at least what appears to be. They're successful, they're admired. Maybe they've gained great positions of, of power and influence, but they're not honest people. They're not people of integrity. And as Asaph is, is wrestling this and it's running through his mind, Notice he comes up in verses 13 and 14 with, with just sort of a, a, a comment he puts out there. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued, I have been punished every morning. Now these are not comments of one who is an atheist. This is a comment of one who begins by saying, God is good to Israel. But in his worship, he's also wrestling with questions. And he's saying, well, why is this? Is it in vain? The word vain means simply, is, is this useless? Is this an empty effort on my part to try to live a godly life in a world where it's the ungodly? who succeed, or it's the ungodly who are listened to. Look at verse 9 through 11. It says, Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? And what he's saying here is, you, you look at the ungodly, and they love to talk. And not only do they love to talk, but they seem to gather lots of influence. People listen to them. Watch some of the television shows like Shark Tank, Oprah. What happens when Oprah endorses a book? It goes off into the bestseller realm. People listen to certain voices in our world, but at the same time, is our world saying, what, what could God possibly know? What, what use is there for Scripture and for Christ? In a world like that, similar in every way to Asaph's world, what misconception does that show us, many of us bring with us into worship? And I think the misconception we bring into worship at times is that worship isn't a place to come before God with your questions and your doubts and your struggles. But in fact, it is the very place that those things should be brought with you. Not to merely push them out of your thinking and say, well, I can't think about that now. It's time for, for worship. But in fact, Asaph is saying, those are the issues that should accompany you into true worship. Because only in genuine worship will we see God's people transformed. 
And as you look closely at Psalm 73, you see a transformation begin to take shape here. As you come to verses 16 and 17, here is Asaph wrestling with these things. Compound this with the description of Asaph being a musician, a worship leader, maybe leading a, a group of others in how to encourage the people of God to worship. And he says, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. What, what a beautiful description of Asaph saying, this was overwhelming me. It, it was oppressive. The word oppressive in Hebrew is, is, describes the dark side of labor. In, in other words, it's exhaustive. It's overwhelming. And so as he's wrestling with these questions, he says, you want to know what put it all into perspective? Was worship. Was that as I came before God, I finally began to see these things, not from my perspective, but from God's perspective. When I entered the sanctuary, then I understood so the question that comes up here is, what did he begin to understand? It doesn't mean he had the answer to every single issue, because many of these we could classify as a mystery. Why does God allow some people to deal with sickness and others he keeps from sickness? But he says, the thing that I began to understand is the following. And I think what we discover here is that if we worship like Asaph worshiped, and in a sense, we have even a greater privilege in Christ to be able to worship truly in spirit and in truth. That God will change our understanding of himself, others, and ourself through worship. So let's take a look first here. Our worship expands your knowledge of God. In this particular psalm, you have four different titles used for God. Now, the most dominant one is the word Elohim. Sometimes this is referred to as an Elohimic psalm. But let me just draw your attention. Notice verse 17, you have simply God, the title El, which emphasizes the power of God being displayed. Verse 20, he mentions Lord, which is the title Adonai, Adon, referring to the same God, but again, a different title, emphasizing God as a master, an owner. Verse 26, verse 26, he refers and says, God is the strength of my heart. The word God there is not El, but is Elohim, speaking of God who is the creator of everything. And then verse 28, he concludes by saying the sovereign Lord, Adon Elohim. So the richness of titles reveal that as you worship God, you should expand, be expanding in your knowledge of God, in the richness of who God is. But not only does genuine worship expand your knowledge of God, it should expand as well your knowledge of others and yourself. Because as Asaph goes into the presence of the Lord, he says, I now understand, in verse 17, 
their final destiny. And who he's referring to specifically is, what is the destiny of the ungodly? In other words, yes, from, from this perspective, it looks like there is no punishment. It looks like, in fact, like you might say today, people who, who cheat, lie, who are dishonest, unfaithful, they get away with it. And in fact, we, we elevate them and we look to them and we listen to them. But Asaph brings us back to the reality that that is how it appears, but that is not really reality. And so you see in verses 18 through 20, uh, just a summary of what happens to the ungodly. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed completely, swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you despise them as fantasies. What's the similarity between a dream and a fantasy? It may look real, it may feel real, but it's not. And it's fleeting. And so Asaph is reminded in worship, yes, this is the reality of the ungodly. And notice the difference when he speaks of the ungodly, they are on slippery ground. I think all of us can relate to slippery ground this winter. But nowhere in Scripture do you have a, a description like that of the godly. God says of those who are his, I will not let you stumble or slip. I will keep your footing secure. And so in genuine worship, we are reminded of what is the true condition of the ungodly. Not, not what our world thinks of them, but what is God's assessment and appraisal of them? But then you go down to verses 21 and 22. True worship expands your knowledge also of yourself. Because as you come into the presence of God, we should see ourselves truly for who we are apart from Christ. Asaph says in verses 20 and 21, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. What humility worship should generate in us. In a world that wants everyone to think you are the most important thing in it, worship reminds us our proper place before God. When Asaph says that I was senseless and ignorant, he's referring to his own stubbornness to see what is so plainly revealed in worship. Notice how so much of even worship today in churches has become me-centered, man-centered, not God-centered. And Asaph takes us back to that must change if we're going to understand worship. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus would tell of the tax collector and the Pharisee who, who, who go to the temple to pray. The Pharisee is very arrogant and prideful, thanking God that he is not like others. And then the tax collector merely will not even look up and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When was the last time in worship that was what you thought? That's what worship should do to us. It should humble us. And yet at the same time, we rejoice 
in the riches that are ours in Christ. But it leaves us with a deeper knowledge of not just others, but a deeper knowledge of ourselves. Finally, worship intended as God designed it to be should expand our knowledge and delight in God. That it should leave us craving more. And so you see this as the psalm comes to a conclusion, really beginning at verse 23 through 28, where Asaph acknowledges who God is and the personal role that God plays in the life of not just his people, but in Asaph as an individual worshiper of God. Listen to what he says in verse 23. Yet I am always with you. Now that seems odd because you would almost think he would have said, yet you are always with me. But he says, yet I am always with you. Worship, yes, draws us into God's presence, but it should deepen our delight in God that we can leave saying, I desire to always be in God's presence, to walk with God. But then he goes on and says, you hold me by my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. What strong words, you hold me. You grab onto me and protect me and watch over me. Then he says, you guide me, you lead me, and eventually you will take me into glory. What did Jesus say when he was facing the cross to his disciples? Be comforted for where I am going, there you will be also. Isn't worship here on earth just a small taste of what awaits us in Christ in heaven, that we, we speak of worship entering the presence of God. And yet we fully know we're not experiencing that presence to the depth that we will when all sin has been removed in the new heaven and a new earth. So we're getting a taste now of what it means to be in God's glory, to be in God's presence, which we will be for an eternity. Then verse 25, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Is that what worship should do to God's people? That we re leave realizing we must leave. We have a job to do in the world to make disciples. But we leave saying, you know what? This earth has really nothing that meets and satisfies my deepest need. I can only find that in worshiping God through Jesus Christ. And he includes in that, he says in verse 26, that God is my portion forever. He, he is all I need. He is who I am satisfied in. What a fitting conclusion to a discourse on worship that reminds us that worship is fitting for God's people. And worship transforms God's people when he simply says in verse 28, But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. There you have that phrase. It is, it is good. Not just is it desirable, is it fitting, does it make sense in light of God who is good. 
but it is excellent. It is something I should be devoted to cultivating. What would happen this week if that was our goal? To be near God, to walk with God, to, to worship God. And so Asaph's psalm leaves us, you could say, with two questions that he's not going to answer for us, but that we must answer for ourselves. And the first is simply, how do you approach worship? Does your approach to worship reflect Asaph's approach to worship? Or do you come to worship much like those who would go see Andy Warhol's movie, hoping they can endure it, at least get through it, maybe enjoy one or two parts of it, and then get back to their life? So Asaph wants us to think about, what is your approach to worship? And a follow-up question would simply be, how do you prepare for worship? And you could start with Sundays. How do you prepare for worship on Sunday? Now, I firmly believe worship is a preparation that takes place all week long. But do you get a good night's rest on Saturday night? You get up early enough to prepare yourself for worship Sunday morning. If you honestly think preparing for worship is just reading the meditation that's in the bulletin, you're mistaken. That's there to help us, but if that's your sole preparation for worship, then you haven't grasped the God that Asaph is worshiping. How do you prepare for worship during the week? Time reading scripture, praying for one another, Praying for the worship service, praying for the ministries of the church, praying that in all things, in all ways that day, you would be near God. Because being near God is good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, these words have done what worship should always do. Confront us with the reality of who you are, and remind us of our sinfulness. Remind us that our holiness is found only in you through Jesus Christ. May we be a people devoted to doing what is good, and that is that we worship well. In Jesus' name, amen.